0: We're coming towards the end of this series of the Motherworldly podcast, in which I, Karen Hall, have enjoyed talking to writers and readers and would-be writers. It was during my interview with Amy Jones in episode 5 that it occurred to me to ask today's guest if she would spare me half an hour, which reminds me to mention how grateful I am to all the amazing people who have so kindly supported this fledgling podcast as guests, listeners and Patreon supporters. You are a small but wonderful group. Petra Boynton is the Daily Telegraph's agony aunt and so much more. A social psychologist, lecturer and researcher, she specialises in matters of relationships and sex, particularly when it comes to fertility, pregnancy and parenthood. Her books include The Research Companion, Coping with Pregnancy Loss, and I think the newest one is Being Well in Academia. She's nodding, yeah. good. Um, welcome to my new podcast, yes. Petra. So I got, did I get that right? Yeah, the only thing that's not right is I'm no longer at the
1: telegram. Are you not? Ah. But I'm well, still an agony. The, ent- the internet thinks you are still no, at the Telegram. No. I'm, well, I've I've been sort of freelance agony aunting, really, because I've been writing books, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't have a column anymore. I have a kind of website, but uh, I'm, I'm an agony aunt in search of a column. Oh. Sort of
0: at the moment, but yeah. Well, yeah. If any of my 14 listeners have space for you. <laughs> <laughs> they
1: can find me a job. Yeah, I decided to go because it's very difficult giving advice when the rest of the paper is doing things that potentially is causing people harm. Um, So I had a kind of a long period where I was thinking I'm just, I've got this opportunity to speak to lots of people and share advice and do a good job. And I was allowed to do a lot of things there that I probably couldn't do at many other newspapers. But equally, as we've seen over the last few years, the sort of nature of coverage has become very partisan and polarised and very hostile. And in some cases has become targeting particular minority groups. And since they were the bulk of people writing into me um, and struggling with issues of, of prejudice and harm, it felt very mm, tricky to be mm. in a position of, of, on the one hand offering advice and on the other hand, being kind of part of a machine that was causing the problem. And so I, uh, decided to, to leave um, yeah. so you've
0: moved on I have yeah mm. that's really interesting the, the so the the medium in which you were working mm. felt politically it felt incongruent, it sounds like
1: yeah very much so and and i felt I think we're always the harshest judges of ourselves, um, but also if we're aware of sort of what's being talked about in the news or social media. I was also thinking it's only a matter of time between, before somebody else thinks what I'm thinking, which is this role is really a problem. And I I, I didn't know what I would do if, if it was somebody else saying to me, you should step down. So I thought, well, if it's, it's better if I make that decision. And I also decided I wasn't going to make a big deal of it because I could have done. Um, and it would have probably been you know, noteworthy. Uh, they did have another agony uncle um, who is far more famous than I, Graham Norton, who also stepped down. Um, but I went first uh, and more quietly, and wasn't paid half as <laughs> half as much for my column. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a worry, I think, and it, it's tricky because the advice column, as we know it, is dying. It's just not existing. There aren't many agony aunts left anymore, and of those that do exist. You know, it's it's a tricky job. It's hard to do. So, I mean, any of us can set up an advice column or a advice program or a advice podcast, and lots of people are, and lots of them are good. But also equally, lots of it isn't as good. And the thing that often makes it good is you need a funded organisation behind you, mm. um because we can all talk about problems and broadcast on problems, but the behind-the-scenes stuff of answering every single problem that comes in you need you need money for that
0: yeah i'm just thinking about um the work that i used to do for net mums i think it was mm. net mums not mums net yes it was net mums um i always kept them mixed up even when they were paying me <laughs> <laughs> it was a terrible faux pas but they had funding and i can't remember if it was department of health or somebody like that um for people to For qualified people to be answering on their message boards um, about sort of sleep and very early parenting issues and that seemed like a really good way to work it. Yeah
1: absolutely and I think that that really helps because peer support is invaluable and and often more welcome I think than sort of an expert coming and telling you what you do but at the same time Peers aren't always right and aren't accountable if they're wrong. Whereas if you are someone in a, in a sort of designated role, if you get it wrong, you're more accountable. And then it's your job to put it right. So, and hopefully not go too wrong to begin with. So it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of tricky time to be an agony aunt in that the skills you're qualified to do are in more need than ever. But because of the way the media is changing, the the opportunities to do that job well are are diminishing. That's
0: a sad, sad thing yeah it is it is
1: but it's all right put all the energy into writing books instead so there you go
0: yes and it seems from the title of your book that you're um using that agony aunt approach yes um, to write a book called being well in academia seems very much like um that kind of um more authoritative than peer support but i'm i'm in this with you kind of title for a book tell me more about it well it's
1: it's very much like you said it really I, it's I sort of come at it from several angles uh obviously I worked in universities for a long time um I worked in several UK universities and taught in lots of other ones and um about six years ago I took redundancy uh and decided I was deciding whether or not to go back and work in one university and I decided instead I would do consultancy with others so I work sometimes in universities and sometimes with charities and other organizations but Obviously, my background's an academic, and then having been an academic, I was an agony aunt the whole time I was working in academia, so I was doing both jobs. Um, not always comfortably, I have to say, because academia is a strange place and that it's not especially welcoming of um, what it considers to be non academic things. So, working with journalists and media is both coveted massively but also sneered at, so it's a strange role to be occupying, occupying both. I think at the Guardians, I was the UK's first evidence-based agony aunt, and I have no <laughs> idea if that's true. or if What not, a wonderful title. It's not the most exciting title, no, um, but uh, no, I love it. Um, that, that sort of idea of, of kind of combining the academic and the the advice giving, and, and mainly what I did was that, you know, I was sitting on top of Uh, i was working in a health department i had access to evidence and you know when people asked me to help them i could signpost them to charities and sources of support but i could also look at what was the latest information to make sure as much as possible i wasn't giving them clinical advice but i was giving them enough information that they would be going to the right person so with all advice giving it's it's signposting to support so i don't I don't claim to have answers but I claim to have enough information that would give people the confidence or the security that they could either think well actually this will pass or actually I could deal with this myself or no I need to go and get more help and if so rather than going around the houses trying to find what that would be I can sort of say go here first and see what happens. So this book really came out of work i've been doing around advice giving and particularly around safety and well-being so most of my research over the years has been on what i think is described as sensitive subjects, so sexual reproductive health and a lot of that's been in the community and um because i've done that work for a long time um people have asked me to come and do training with staff um around how they could be safe and well either doing field work or more often in university settings. Every time I did that kind of training, there'd always be one or more people staying behind who wanted to talk about the problems in their departments. So they actually weren't that worried about doing field work. But when they were in their own department, that's where they were facing homophobic abuse or racial abuse or sexism or other kinds of harassment and and harm. And so for a long while I've been sort of working on that sort of safety and wellbeing side both sort of through research and advice giving and training but as we've all seen I think in the press there are quite a lot of problems within universities there have been for a long time but they are worsening um, there's a lot of problems over people's jobs there's a lot of problems over student welfare academic staff are you know picking up The piece is because mental health services are being cut, but they're not being supported to do so when they are overworked themselves. They're very stressed. Um, The pandemic hasn't helped at all. You know, that people are struggling with all kinds of things there. And so I was asked to write a book that basically was a sort of self-help book for anybody in academia. So it could be somebody studying. It might be a cleaner or a porter. It might be somebody who's a lecturer. It might be an admin worker. Uh, it could be someone in IT or finance. It doesn't really matter where they're working. It was this sense of having a book that would give them enough information that either they could help themselves or they could find somebody else to help them. In the same way sort of approach
0: then of empowering rather than just telling them what to do. Yeah
1: because I think also uh, the challenge with academia particularly is is academics are as prone as the rest of us to have crises in and outside of the workplace or the study place but they're often quite demanding in terms of wanting the information to be correct. Um, But also I think it's strange because there's if they don't like what they read they want to know where it's from and are quite challenging of it but if they do like what they read they don't really care where it's from so I I had a kind of challenge to make sure the information was was rigorous and accurate and supportive but also I wasn't just writing it for an audience in the UK I was thinking about uh, most of my work is international so although I'm based here i've worked um, primarily online teaching across numerous countries um, over the years, so I wanted to think if somebody was studying um, in Nepal, they could find the book as useful as somebody studying in Nigeria as somebody you know who's at the University of Nottingham it doesn 't really matter where anybody was. I just thought of places that started within there um, <laughs> but you know, outside of that you know that it, it could translate as much as possible. I think being also aware that there's lots of stuff we have in common in our struggles within academia but then there are specific differences um, and that's usually based around inequalities around divisions where people are much more likely to struggle and to try and have information that was inclusive
0: it sounds like a real challenge to encompass all that diversity
1: yeah and having done it I'm that's the thing that scares me, I think, the most in that it's, it's almost easier to just write a book that's for a very narrow sort of audience. I could have said, well, I'm only going to focus on the UK and I'm just going to ignore disability and I'm going to ignore the horrible problems of racism that academia has. And I'm going to just focus on, you know, a very sort of narrow view of mental health, um, which is kind of a problem we have with a lot of the way that advice is processed around not just academia, but organisations generally, that, that when we talk about well being, it's really kind of mild to moderate mental health that we're talking about and fairly simplistic answers given to that. So um, it's one of the criticisms that I've sort of made in the book that universities are, they're kind of the cause of a lot of mental distress. They're, they're not just the, the sort of, the fact that it happens by, by chance that people who are in universities happen to be stressed. Universities make people really quite unwell by the way they go about things. Um, but they also try and distance themselves from that by, you know, having a mental health day. Or I saw recently somebody had said that they weren't allowed to take annual leave because their resilience training was booked for that week. <laughs> oh. It's kind of like, you know, it couldn't make it, up. <laughs> it makes no sense at all. So it's, it's really quite, peculiar how they cause problems and then put in place very simplistic solutions mm. um to not put you know they don't take this stuff very seriously um, and and so i think the challenge i had was that how, how do i not become part of that problem when the easiest option would have been to do something fairly light fairly you know non-critical um, fairly surface level I think people would have criticized that but there's the danger I think that when you try and be much more accessible and much more critical and much more bold that the opportunities to get that wrong and annoy even more people are, are, are that much greater so at this point it's the book is out um, I actually haven't seen a copy <laughs> I haven't seen a copy um, other people have seen their copies the people who pre-ordered at some point mine will arrive I obviously saw it when I wrote it That that sounds bad, doesn't it? I haven't had my own book. Um, but I'm I'm at that it's it's I'm I'm glad we're talking about this now because I think I'm at that point where other authors will recognise of the the thing is done and it's out there and you're at that stage where you know people have started to read it, which is both lovely and terrifying. And then there's that responsibility of of did I did I get it right? I think I did. I may not have done. And so, yeah, I will discover that soon.
0: So waiting for reviews.
1: Yes. And I, I've said all the way through, it's, it's a dialogue because I think, I mean, I wrote about it before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, And so while it was in being edited, the pandemic had started we were in lockdown um but I wasn't in a position then to revise it and unfortunately I don't think I have to but I had said throughout it it's much more of a dialogue and so I I will use a blog alongside the book that I think people give feedback or more things arise I can be responsive and put that information out there Um, you can engage directly with your readers Yes, because I think anything with advice giving, things move on, Mm. and at the moment it's moving
0: fast. I was going to ask you if you'd had the opportunity to write another chapter before the pandemic, oh no sorry, uh, sort of taking account of the pandemic and the lockdown.
1: Well, I, I have written a chapter for somebody else's book series there's another uh, a colleague of mine um as uh, Helen Kara has been writing uh, with colleagues a book series on researching the pandemic and there's it's a three-part series and I've written a chapter in that about um safety so it's less on well-being and it's more about safety practices um you know so that's personal safety as well as mental safety so that was able I, I was quite glad of that opportunity because it let me sort of cover off the stuff and i've also just finished a guidebook that is for um academics on how they look after themselves and students particularly with the start of the academic year in the pandemic which is different from the book and that that i had to do because as you say that's almost like the additional chapter that probably you know, I would have written had it been done slightly, mm. slightly. That though.
0: sounds like something I need to get my hands on. Term starts on Wednesday.
1: <laughs> well, I, shall, I shall send you it. I shall, I shall send you a copy. Um, and I, I wanted to do it really because schools have been thinking about sort of recovery syllabus and how we mm. do that. I am a bit sceptical of it. I think the idea of planning before we start is slightly... getting ahead of ourselves and there's too many unknowns but there are enough things we can think around about sort of welcoming back and having a an idea of what to expect that at least lets us say okay we need to take this a bit slower and plan for this and Mm. it's probably going to be you know this I think last academic year was tough because everything just was in crisis yeah I think everyone's expecting that this year will go back and what we knew last year will apply I don't think it will I think it's gonna be different and I think it will be as much if not more upheaval actually. yeah
0: I saw on twitter the term uh, panic godgy yes yes I thought that's precisely what we're in both as the mother of a teenager and as a university tutor I was right there thinking yeah we are just firefighting and short-term planning and um just failing on every front at the moment to do a good job here because it, 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 it's impossible
1: it is impossible and i think part of it is just acknowledging that and saying it's impossible and we're not going to get this right and we'll do the best that we can um uh, but you know at this point in time you know even thinking about returning students we've got people who've Been bereaved, we've got people who've been hugely disadvantaged, we've had people who've been stuck at home, people who've been carers, people who've been looking after their kids, people who've been trying to homeschool. Um, We've had the whole of the the A-level fiasco. That's going to leave, you know, a mark. It's going to, you know, if you think about the the sort of first years coming in with that as their kind of recent history, the the whole upheaval over their A-levels and then that awful disruption, and Okay, that has been overturned, and a lot of them have been able to go where they wanted to go. But then, there's the sort of logistics of all of that, and yeah. uh, I don't, I don't think this stuff just passes uh, again because everything's so rapid. It's almost like, well, that thing happened, so we're, we're moving on to the next crisis now, assuming that the last crisis is let go of. Whereas, actually, yeah. for a lot of them, they're still processing that. So we will, I think, we will have a number of years in which you know, mental health is going to be a big issue for us all.
0: Yeah. They're not sequential crises, are they? They're a pile. Yes. One on top of another.
1: Yes. And I think that's it, it's this sense that people have talked about feeling like, you know, with the sort of I mean it's it's not to sort of take away or, or diminish those who have had COVID and, and, and struggle with it, but this sense of not being able to breathe is this it's not just the virus that's that's, that's talking about it. I think that people have drawn on that that metaphor um, in in many ways of of, you you know you can't breathe because of the pandemic but the the sort of physical symptoms of of it but there's also this sort of sense that you just cannot catch a breath because of everything that's just happening all directions and um, but we've also drawn on the sort of the parallels with um, what's happening in the states and also the UK and other countries around racism of of, the sort of sense of I can't breathe there and the the sense of fear Um, there's so much going on um, and uh, you know usually we would expect that we've got some time to unpack it we don't have any time and and I, I think people are also fearful if they start what will happen as a consequence so we are going to have to address these things but how they manifest themselves is yet to be discovered
0: mm. it's a place to the whole of society doesn't
1: it? it does yeah it absolutely does yeah i mean i think it's interesting so i've written this thing that's called being well in academia but i mean parts of it are unique to universities and colleges because of the way that they operate and the harms that they can cause and the the situation that people studying and working find themselves but a lot of the advice in there would be applicable to anybody really it's 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 about looking after yourself and not assuming that you've got people there necessarily to help you. So it, it gives you ideas of how you might build a safety net, but if you don't have one, where you look elsewhere for
0: that. Can I ask you about your process of writing? I've talked to quite a few authors and um, I've heard of everything from just, I sort of sit at my desk and spew it onto the mm. laptop and it all just comes in a tumble to, I set myself an X thousand words per day and I have to write them before breakfast to i kind of wrote some stuff and then shoved it under the bed for five years and hoped it would write itself <laughs> what, what do you do
1: well kind of a sort of a bit of all of those things and i think it's been different for every single book i've written so the first book i read, wrote which is about 15 years ago um i i had quite a long time to write that and i would say a large portion of the time was not spent writing but was spent telling people i was writing a book mm-hmm. or not actually writing And then a frantic period of writing very close to the deadline. But I was a bit like in, um, you know, the film Working Girl. um, Mm -hmm. And uh, she's always, she kind of finds things in the newspaper or the magazine on her commutes on the ferry in the morning. There was an awful lot of that. So I'd find, you know, anything that I found was sort of somehow felt useful. And I had like boxes full of snippets and clippings. And then I had to look back and think, why, why did I cut that out of? You know, the Aldershot Inquirer or something, <laughs> you know, really random things that I I, I was picking up. Um, and I think that worked for me just because of the fact I was really busy with several jobs at the time and... I also had time evenings and weekends to just really go for it. So when I did it, it was a real binge writing session. Looking back, I think I spent a lot of time reading and thinking, and then it kind of came together. And I'd been doing a lot of what I was writing about. This was a book on doing research practically. I was teaching it as well. So it wasn't that difficult to write, particularly. But when I did it for the second edition, which was about a decade later, and I rewrote it, that I actually had a set period of time. You know, I've got this much time to write. My children were little at the time. And it was like, you've got this many hours in the day between when they go to school and when they come home uh, to get this work done. In fact, actually, my youngest was at childminder. He wasn't even at school. So um, it was, you've got kind of a few mornings a week better make it count over the next five months or so and so that was much more rigid uh when i wrote the book on baby loss which was a couple of years ago that was sort of a combination of the two it was a bit planned and a bit frenetic at the end um and then this one i wrote uh the process was much more around looking back over things i'd done over a long period, both as an agnion and as an academic, and and finding tools and looking back over lecture notes and going back to original sources and reading books, so I'd say the process of that writing was a lot of reading, a lot mm. of note taking. So the way I tend to write is is that I have on my phone I've got notes, and and I will put notes, and I will I, I will write for myself why I'm writing the note and what it's about, and then link to things. Um, because if I'm out and about and an idea comes to me that that really helps and then I will put that into to something I'm I'm writing Um, but I would say I think some people are very good at at sitting down and just writing and writing and writing and I used to be but I I think it's just the reality of life and and having a young family and Mm -hmm. having other work to do and paid work takes priority that it's like When I get into it, I love doing it and I would love more than anything to have a, you know, a writing shed or a retreat or to go away and do something and just go for it. Um, Whereas what I tend to do, it tends to be just as and when I can write, Mm. uh, but with a lot of focus on reading and, and then trying to remember what I've read and reference it properly yes absolutely yeah.
0: <laughs> there's software for that you know
1: <laughs> there is there is yeah, thank you thank
0: <laughs> that's I'm really trying, helpful uh, isn't it i've just told a research academic to use software for reference Zotero row
1: my i would marry it if i could i love it it just is the best thing ever um i mean i think I, I think the other thing with that's interesting about writing a sort of self-help book is that a lot of the stuff when you're writing it is stuff you've read years ago in the hairdressers or something mm. stuck with you but you can't I mean there's a couple of incidents. I can't actually remember where this idea came to me but it's not my idea so I'm kind of I'm being honest that I'm not claiming this stuff as my own but in other places it was like well I've got to try and track that back so that's been quite interesting as a process to you know um go back and and find stuff that i've been telling people to do for years i know came from somewhere once but it wasn't me so who can i reference to to do that Um, so what do you do in that case well i think it's it's sometimes it's quite easy because it's a quote or an idea that's stuck in your head and and if you put that quote in you can normally find it a couple of times it was a song lyric which was interesting wasn't a book at all but in other cases it was yeah, it was from a book or a a, a resource. Um, but in other cases, it's more that you find lots of people have said it. So mm. there's quite a lot around advice giving where everybody's kind of saying the same thing. And, and that's always tricky, I think, as a writer, again, is how do you make this stuff fresh for, A, yourself, because you're probably fed up with saying it, and also for your audience who may have thought, well, why am I buying this book when I could have read that, you know, anywhere. Um, So what I I did with this particular book is I tried as much as possible um, to track down resources that I could then attribute to minority authors, so particularly black women scholars, um, but also um, authors from low and middle income countries as well. So I I wasn't just drawing on the same old people doing stuff. And and equally I then had to check those sources because sometimes I think with advice giving you read a quote and you think, gosh, that's brilliant. And then you go and read the person who's put together that advice and and then you discover that actually they have got a whole host of other really problematic mm. views on life or they've done things that are really not great. Or they're discouraging people to, to you know, take medication that these people really need. It's that kind of worry. So I had that problem as well, that it was, you know, I didn't want to link people to sources of support that actually, the, the quote that I was using was great, but then I'd be doing something counterproductive.
0: Yes, that's a minefield.
1: Yeah, and I, I think the self-help area is, um, I mean, historically has always been, problem you know of 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 that you can have incredibly sage and wise advice from truly awful people or um you know uh, the advice actually um works but it only works in a particular time or place or, or circumstance or that that you've got the um the the person is very well intentioned but the the information they're sharing is actually probably slightly dodgy and and Interestingly, I I think that there's there's quite a lot of wellness um, focus that that comes with its own range of of real problems. Um, You know, so uh, a lot of motivational ideas, when you look into them, are are quite um, ableist, uh, particularly. Or they're... um, there's a lot of sort of cultural appropriation as well so you know you'll suddenly discover people are talking mystically about all sorts of things that you sense they probably don't really know about and you know if you're writing with indigenous audiences in mind it becomes extremely worrying that you might be you know relaying back to them things that are you know when they're opening a book on feeling good about themselves they suddenly felt actually your reinforcing a trauma or insulting or, or being rude. So that I think was a challenge in terms of um, writing for a, a very diverse and accessible audience in a way that wasn't patronising, but also didn't kind of fall into this trap of being particularly ableist and and sort of, yeah, generally offensive.
0: That's a lot of standards you're holding.
1: Yeah. And, and as I said earlier, that's that's the bit that I'm I'm most most worried about. And I, I think also that that it's it's such a lot of information in in a a, a small pocket book. Yeah. And, and you think why why did I try and do this? And and inevitably, I mean, it's it's true. I'm sure everybody listening and everybody who's written and all the authors you've spoken to will say the same: is that the moment you pick up that book on the bookshelf or it's sent to you or whatever else is the moment that you realize all the things you should have written (laughs) Well,
0: that's your next book
1: yeah I think it is but I I do there's an interesting thing with I think if you write I can't speak about writing creatively or novels because I don't I don't have experience of that but when you're writing sort of textbooks I think there's a sense generally that there's a sort of limit on them is in I'm going to cover this field so I'm going to cover how you do this kind of analysis or I'm going to cover um, an aspect of sociology or something to do with mechanics or something to do chemistry and it will be kind of short and boundaried and and if you've forgotten it that's sort of forgivable because as you say there's another book on that there's lots of other textbooks the danger I think with this is it's almost you know there could be and I'm hoping people will do this that actually for the whole book I've written there's like loads of other, if not books, there's podcasts or training videos or other kinds of resources that people could probably make and I hope they do. Um, for example, I mean, I was looking at this sort of issues around um, autistics in academia, that there's a whole load of more resources needed um for autistic academics but then if you think about it there will be um autistics with additional learning difficulties or the issues for black and other ethnic minority autistic students and stuff you know for each different group of people if you think about different intersections of um race and sexuality and gender and disability and all of those things there's there's so many other avenues that you could take the work so yeah i think in trying to sort of be open to everybody and, and and honor difference and diversity there's this sort of slight danger that it's it's not going to do any of it in enough depth mm. uh, so I'm hoping that I don't know that those would be my next books but I'm hoping either that be somebody else's books or if if other people have written I, I was very careful to find as much as I could so I mean what it does is it's it's like a directory there's bits from me telling people what they may or may not want to do but then there's lots of signposting you know go and read this go and find this website go and look at yeah. this, pod, you know, listen to this podcast or whatever that if if i've missed it it's an oversight it's not done deliberately that i can then start sort of again signposting people to those other resources too
0: yeah
1: and that's where the blog's really going to come into yeah so. yeah, yeah. I, think, I think i and i wrote it with that in mind and i, I think going back to when you're talking about sort of writing i tend to write with There's a kind of a book as in a static thing that you can buy and hold and read or look at on your Kindle or whatever, listen Mm -hmm. to, or there's the blog, which tends to be much more,
0: you know, um, responsive. Yeah, sounds really good. There's so much more to ask you about, but I think that we're probably coming up to a half an hour. Um, So I'm going to say thank you for giving me a little bit of time today.
1: It's very nice to talk to you, and it's nice. Yes. To, it's nice to sort of interrogate it. I think it's it's good to, yeah. It'd be interesting maybe in a year or so to review it and see whether what I thought about it now is is how it's turned out. That might well happen. <laughs> we'll come back, shall we? <laughs> yeah, that'll be lovely. I mean, one thing I was going to just say really quickly because I, mm-hmm. I know time is tight is that there's something that's different about this book is that for the other ones I've written, I think social media is moving on. All the time. Mm. And I think the thing that's different about this book is that it's something that I'm embedded in a community and people know me. They knew at every point in this process I was writing a book. And it's the first book I've done that I haven't had to ask people to share on social media. They've got a copy. It does say at the end, if you've read it, would you like to do that? But people are actually posting, you know, oh, this has just come in the post, people are asking questions about it already. And I I think for all writers the the big thing I've learned through doing this is that not to be afraid to talk about it all the way through the good bits the bad bits maybe some snippets of what's happening to build a community and to to sort of be part of that community so it's not just like you do the book and then you want to read it I've been kind of doing because I've been doing advice giving all this time in, in academia people know that um but that's, that's been a nice surprise for me that I felt there's a different feel around this, which I hope, again, we'll have to come back. I might jinx it now by saying that the four people who sent me a photo of the book <laughs> will be the sum total of my readership. But I,
0: I hope it will be different. I I'm sure it's just the beginning. I hope so. Petra, thank you so much. It's been lovely thank to talk you. to you, as it always is. Thank you. A lot to think about for us there as the university term starts and school's been back a few weeks. Really lovely to speak to Petra again um, and I'm sure I'll do so once more in the future. Um, you can talk to me about this episode if you have any thoughts. Um, if you would like to join us on Patreon, um, it's patreon.com motherworldly and anyone subscribing to Patreon will get the episodes as they are made and not have to wait for the release each Friday. Um, you could also have a chat with me if you wanted to for nothing at all. Um, I'm over on Twitter at motherworldlyuk and on Instagram as motherworldlypod. We will be back next week. Our final episode is with the lovely Mia Scotland.